Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. We've been going through a series on Haggai the last several weeks, and it is time for us to get to, as a preacher, a very cherished couple of verses. So please, if you would, stand for the reading of the Word of God. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of God. All right. Well, as I said, this is a, a great passage for a preacher to read. It's an encouragement as, uh, as I read through the prophets, I can tell you I do not want to be Isaiah. I do not want to be a Jeremiah. Those were very difficult ministries. They had to preach on very hard soil, and they had to preach messages that had very little hope in them for at least the present generation. But Haggai, Haggai doesn't only preach a message, but then sees his message responded to with obedience by all the people. Oh my goodness, I cannot tell you how much that is my delight to see the preached word be responded to with heartfelt and widespread obedience. So if I could be a prophet, I would like to be Haggai. And if I could have a particular people I hope you're Haggai's people today, all right? Well, uh, to set some uh, introduction to these verses, I need to take you back to uh, a period in my life, my sophomore year of high school, and I was enrolled in geometry. And uh, math, math is not my hardest subject, but it's not my most loved subject, uh, but the way that our geometry class was set up, the teacher was, was treat, treating us well beyond our maturity. She set up the grade book like this. She said, 85% of your grade will be your tests, and 15% of your grade will be your homework. Now, to share a little bit of how I do math, I figured I can ace the tests without the homework. 
and therefore save all that time getting to play Nintendo and doing whatever I want in the evenings. And you know what? I did it that year. I got my B, and I'm happy with a B. So I did geometry by learning how to do the minimum. But something happened. Some takeaway from that became quite a problem as I continued my studies. Because in that class, in my cleverness to treat the grade book to my advantage in the immediate, I had learned to separate learning from applying. I had become a hearer and not a doer. And I did okay for a while. I was able to make it through several math classes, uh, pulling together from my listening skills what I needed to do. But eventually, when I entered engineering school, it caught up to me. And I found myself stalling and regressing and struggling mightily to continue on with my studies. The only remedy to this was to commit to doing the work, to studying, to putting into practice the lessons of a textbook. I learned from that experience that stalling and regressing are terrible places to be. They can be very difficult to get out of. And when you get into a stall, when you get into that place of regression, the voice, just quit, gets very loud and very persuasive. This is too hard. This is stupid. This is not for you anyway. Go to preacher school. No. That's That's not how I came to preacher school. Stalling and regressing can happen to us spiritually. The excitement of our faith settles down and we find ourselves coasting. We give ourselves to less and less attention to our faith as time goes by. We put it in a place in our life where it fits. And slowly but gradually, many of us have had the experience of our faith becoming something quaint and comfortable and unchallenging. Does this describe you? Let me ask you, if I were to pull three of your closest friends, friends who know you well, and I said, give me the top priority of that person's life, how many of them would say, well, it's definitely Jesus? How many of them would say it is definitely his faith or her faith? If they don't say that, if the closest people, the people who know you, who see your life, not at church but everywhere, say, you know what? His priority, her priority, isn't the faith. Then that is a warning sign that you may be stalling and regressing. Perhaps you come to your faith seeking like I did in geometry class. What is the minimum? Give me the minimum and I will be fine. I don't need the small groups. I don't need the Sunday schools. I don't need all of this other stuff that you talk about. Just give me the minimum and that will be fine with me. I can be happy on that. 
Or worse, perhaps your faith has become useless to you. Perhaps your faith has become something that you say, it's, it's too hard, I just want to quit. I'm not getting the fruit, I'm not getting the, the buzz and the benefit out of it, and it, it's in the way of what I want to be and what I want to do. That suggests that you have fallen into a place of severe stalling, severe regressing. Churches have to face the possibility of stalling and regressing too. There is a, a rule that is taught to every uh, student in seminary called the 80-20 rule. That in your average church, 20% of your church do most of the work. Meaning that 80% come to church doing very little of the work that is put in front of that church to do. If that is true, that means for most churches, 80% of churchgoers are either in the state of stalling and regressing or in great danger of it. Now, I don't know how many of that statistic applies to this church, but I do see often very familiar faces when I ask and, and when we seek help on different things. So perhaps some of this rule is here. Let me ask you, what might a church look like that broke out of the 80-20 rule? Wesley, I know I'm not supposed to like Wesley, but Wesley said one good thing. He said, give me 100 people on fire for Jesus, and I would change the world, or the world would be changed. Give 100 people on fire for Jesus, really committed to the faith that they believe in, to living it out, to making it their number one, and the world would be changed. What's exciting about that is there's 100 people right here. That means, if Wesley's right, and he's wrong a lot of places, but let's say he's right here, this church could literally change the world. Thinking about this, I think, helps us understand what Haggai's passage is for us and for the people of God Because Haggai is going to reveal to us the answer to breaking out of stalling and regressing. He reveals that a church can break out of the 80-20 trap. That the individual believer can break out of a spiritual stall. As we have seen, the book of Haggai is a book about renewal. It is very much about rescuing God's people from a stalling and regressing faith. It offers a vision of God's people that are broken out that are out there to change the world. Haggai's message is that renewal is possible. And the reason that we have picked this image of a, of, a, of a shoot coming out of a tree stump is to remind us that that is where God can bring new beginnings. Even a sawed-off tree can have new life spring right from the middle of it. And, a, and, and in Haggai we see even a people who have completely stalled and lost their way can be renewed and revived, made vital and change the world. We have seen from Haggai in our first message two weeks ago that God is ready to renew his people. We saw last week that Haggai shows that God brings renewal when the people reject their complacency. Today we are going to see the, the next step. We are going to see that God's renewal requires that God's people respond to his word with obedience. 
Indeed, we are going to see that there are three reasons that obedience is essential to experiencing God's renewal. So as we come into this passage, if you have either your handout in front of you or your Bible in front of you, we're going to now look at these three reasons that sh- uh, of why obedience is essential to experiencing God's renewal. The first reason that it, obedience is essential to experiencing God's renewal is this. It reveals God's Word in us. And here we are looking at verse 12. We'll reread verse 12 just so that it's in our heads. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So we see in this verse that, it, that when we obey, when God's people obey, it reveals God's word in us. And I want us to see that particularly because in obedience, we are showing three very clear revelations that God's word is in us. First, God's word is shown to have authority over us. We see that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. This shows us that the the words that we have in our scripture, the words of Haggai, the words that have been written for us by God's messengers is God's word. We need to recognize that the nature of the word that we hold in our hand, the nature of Holy Scripture, is that it is the voice of their Lord. That's a very interesting description for Scripture. We are told that the voice of the Lord is in the message that was written by the hand of Haggai. The voice of the Lord is such a a powerful image, a powerful force that we run across in Scripture. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, where John turns around and sees the risen and exalted Lord and describes what he has seen, he says of his voice, that his voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you been around a large waterfall or a river of great rapids? I mean, they arrest your attention. You hear it. In fact, you cannot not hear it. For, for miles, you're walking up to the trail, and the roar of that mighty water is drowning out more and more of what is surrounding you until it is the only thing you can hear. That is what we are told the voice of the Lord is like. It is like the roar of many waters. And Haggai is saying that the voice of the Lord is in the written words of Scripture. The voice is the written word. And that means that when we read God's word, God is speaking to us. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It has the attributes of God's speech because it comes directly from his mouth. And that means that when we hold the Word of God, we are holding God's voice. God's voice speaking to us. And what do we do when the voice 
of our superior speaks to us. In our workplace, what do we do when our teacher speaks to us in the classroom? It is because that voice is coming from our teacher or our superior that we respond to it and recognize that it has authority over us. So when we recognize that our scriptures have the voice of the Lord when it speaks to us, we respond to it by recognizing its authority over us. Hearing God's voice in the Word is actually a mark of being a true disciple. If you go to John chapter 10, Jesus says this about his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, sheep and shepherds have a very clear, distinct relationship. Sheep follow the shepherd. Sheep obey the voice of the shepherd. The command of the shepherd controls the sheep. And Jesus is saying that his sheep, his people, hear his voice and they follow me. They are, he is saying that if you are a disciple of Jesus, when you read the scriptures, you hear his voice. Just like a shepherd, just like a sheep hears the voice of a shepherd and is controlled and directed by it, when we read the scriptures, we hear the voice of our shepherd and we respond to it by following that voice. And so there is a reality that when disciples of Jesus, true believers of Jesus, read the word, they are hearing the voice of their shepherd. And that is the reason that this church is committed to expository preaching. It is the reason that I preach the way I do. I have never come up to this pulpit saying anything that I have not mined out of the text of God. And the reason for that is because When we preach the word, our duty is to preach the word. We are to take what God has given us, which we understand as these scriptures, and we are to mine them and study them and understand them and and work through them to capture their logic, their heart, their spirit, and then to try and proclaim it to try and communicate it, to try and underline it, to try and make it absolutely clear to you at this moment and this time what God's Word is saying. And so expository preaching is absolutely submitted to preaching the message of the Word, the Word of God. The messenger in expository preaching is not the message maker. The text is the message maker. And the duty of an expository preacher is to do the preparation to make that word heard in the preaching. So at at River Community Church, the reason we preach the way we preach is because we do not see the sermon as a pep talk. We do not see the sermon as devotional thoughts or the wisdom of the pastor or advice for living. We see preaching as the communication to you as the sheep 
of Christ, the living and active Word of God. The objective of expository preaching is that you in the preaching would hear the voice of your Lord and respond to it. Any other accomplishment is inferior to that objective. That means that preaching is a great responsibility. It means that it's actually a scary responsibility. James chapter 3 verse 1 says that people should be very careful about teaching because they will be held to a stricter judgment. And I do not say this to, uh, to applaud myself, but to tell you that when I come to preach the word, it is a heavy task. And it is something that I seek to do carefully and diligently because I recognize that when I preach the word, I am communicating to the best of my ability the word of God, and if I make a mistake in that, I lead the sheep astray. And that's a grievous thing. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. The preacher's job is to preach the word. Charged in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That is the mark of a preacher's faithfulness, to preach the word. And that is what you should hope and expect to be hearing. And that is why I encourage you to have a Bible with you. To look at the Word and to see, am I preaching the Word each and every week? But if expository preaching is a great responsibility for the preacher, it also means it's a great responsibility to listen. It's a great responsibility to listen to the preached Word. As Paul goes on in verse 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, I think the word is interesting that Paul uses the word endure. Means that for some, the preaching of the word seems very long and difficult. And exhausting. There is a, a place where the preaching of the word exhausts and wears. But Paul tells us that we must be listeners who are not driven by our itching ears to find the sermons that sound like what we want to hear, but that we must be ready to hear the message that God has. And that means there's work and attentiveness that comes in hearing, hearing the Word of God. So as I, as I think about this, there's two things that need to happen. We need to pray for your preacher. We need to pray for your preacher to preach the Word. And second, we need to pray for our ears. Pray for our ears to listen, sometimes to endure. <laughs> but in all times, to be attentive because in the preaching of the word is the voice of the Lord, your shepherd. Make sure that you give your ear to that task. So we see that in obedience, God's word, it reveals God's word in us. The first was that we show by obedience God's 
word has authority over us, but the second part of revealing God's word in us is that God's word changes us. If we really believe God's word, the result of God's word is change in our lives. It changes us. We see in verse 12 these simple words, the people obeyed. They heard the prophet Haggai preach a message, go build the temple, and the response was, you know, today I wasn't going to build the temple. But God's word said, go build the temple. And they got to work building the temple. So God's word changes us by bringing out conformed actions. The idea in Hebrew of hearing is basically, if you've heard it, you are obedient to it. God is expecting us to apply his words to our life. He is expecting that his words will bring a change to our life based on them. People who come to the word or come to church with the the deep-held belief, people don't change. People don't change. It's anti-gospel. The very message of the gospel is that you have been given a new heart to hear the word and to respond to it. If we read the Bible with the fundamental posture that I can't change, then we are reading the Bible and saying it has no authority and no power. If that's the way we approach the word, we will not find a word for us in it. Because you've already put cotton in your ears. So it conforms our actions, but second, we know that God's word changes us by bringing into us a reverent heart. uh, Verse 12 says, the people feared the Lord. Feared the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, first there is the fact that we fear him for his awesomeness. The Lord that we are in front of is the same Lord that Isaiah met that the seraphim said, holy, 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 that the seraphim covered their eyes because even though they were made to be in the presence of scorching fire, they could not look directly at the unapproachable light of the holy God. And yet, that same God is the God that we approach We come to the throne of grace. We come through the torn curtain of Christ's flesh to be boldly in the presence of that God. But he's no less that God. He has not been tamed. He has been made approachable by the sacrifice of Jesus. But he is still awesome. And if we know him, we know him as awesome, as tremendous. We know him as roaring waters. We come to the edge of a waterfall and we behold its beauty and we love it, but we also fear it. We fear slipping into that waterfall because we know that we are there perilously. We are there protected, but we are there in fear. I like how C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia describes the Christ figure, Aslan, the the lion, to one of the main characters. One of the main characters comes and wants to know, is Aslan safe? And the response was, no, 
Aslan is not safe, but he is good. He is very good. And that is what we have when we are approaching God. We are not approaching God as a safe God. We are approaching him as a good God. And approaching him in that manner requires us to come to him sober, with fear of the Lord. But fear, we might say, well, fear seems to be uh, against love. How can we fear and love at the same time? I would uh, take you back to a, a, a stunning moment in my upbringing when I had disobeyed my, my mom doing something that I shouldn't have done. You know what? I wasn't afraid of the punishment. That's why I went ahead and did it. But my mom said to me after it was revealed what I had done, I'm just so disappointed in you. And that, that stung. That hurt. I had taken the one I love the most, and I had displeased them and disappointed them. And that's where the fear of the Lord is. When our love for Jesus, when our love for the Father is so rich, when we behold the gift of the gospel that he sent his son to die on the cross so that the, the treachery of our sin would not fall upon us, the punishment that we deserved would not be executed upon us, so that we would have access to be in the f- front of and in the presence of and share eternal life with this holy, holy, holy God who is good and amazing and beautiful. And when we recognize all that's been done, how fearful should we be of disappointing? How fearful should we be of choosing sin, knowing that Christ bled Every drop for that sin. If you fixate yourself upon the cross, how can you desire disobedience? How can you have anything but terror that there is something in your heart that still wants to rebel against such a beautiful Savior? That is what the fear of the Lord is. It is desiring so much to live that ransomed, purchased life, not to displease, not to disappoint. Fear is the corollary to love and gratitude. If there is no fear, where's the gratitude? God's word, finally, continuing on, defines us. We see the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of their Lord. The remnant of the people obeyed the voice of their Lord. That is interesting that Haggai notes it is the remnant. The remnant is a very important word in our scriptures. The remnant represented true Israel. There were many people who had Jewish Israelite blood in their veins, but when God looked at their hearts, he recognized they were not truly in covenant with him. True Israel was discovered as the remnant the people who truly believed, who truly walked their faith, whose covenant with the Lord was not just with their lips, but with their lives. That was the remnant. And so Haggai is saying the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of their God. There is 
an important revelation here. The remnant, the true people of God are revealed by the fact that they obey the word. Which is to say that those who do not obey the word are not revealing themselves to the world as the true remnant. And that could be a great concern. Because if it is not revealing that you are part of the remnant, then perhaps you are not part of the people of God. Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Here Jesus is saying that the remnant are the people who abide, who stick to it, who commit, who have covenanted, that their faith is more than a checked box or a couple words in a prayer, but is a life that has been given to Jesus. The authority of God's word is revealed more in our practice than in our profession. Isaiah said this to his people in his day, Isaiah 29, 13, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. It is possible to say with your mouth things that are not true in your heart. But the remnant, the true people of God, their lips reveal the truth of their heart. That is why Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. A confession that does not come from the heart is vain and is something to be very wary of putting all of your trust upon. So that was number one. It reveals God's word in us. Are you ready for two more points? <laughs> Point two. The, the, the second reason obedience is essential to experiencing God's renewal. It revives God's presence in us. And here we look at verse 13. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. Now the question that we have to, to grapple with is how does the presence of God work given that we know that God is omnipresent, God is everywhere in every place, God is always present. The question is how is he present? Is he present in his favor or is he present in his disfavor? Is he present in his love or is he present in his wrath? He is present everywhere. He is present in hell administering judgment. There is nowhere that is away from God. But when the Bible says to us, I am with you, it is communicating that God's favorable presence, God's blessing, God's love and concern and mercy has been directed towards you. And so God's presence is with us in obedience. Notice that God's favorable presence has come as a response to the repentance of the people. Verse 13, then Haggai spoke to the people. It is after they have committed themselves to obedience that Haggai says, God is with you, I am with you. This is that repentance is the key to going from being under God's disfavor to being under God's joyous, loving care. 
At the moment that they have repented of their apathy and their complacency, immediately God responds, I am with you. God has renewed his presence of blessing upon the moment of their obedience. God's presence is our answer to every need, every longing. I remember when I was struggling with finally giving up my job to go to seminary. I was full of fear. It was 2008. I had my first child. The economy had just crashed in October. And I was going to give up a very stable job. And I was like, God, I don't know if I can do that. And I gave myself to prayer. And one of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the things that God gives his people is peace. And in the midst of all that turmoil and all that confusion and all of that man-generated fear, I experienced the presence of the Lord's peace. He gave me peace where all the worldly factors said, you should be scared. That is what the Lord gives to us as we respond to him with obedience. Number three, we have seen that uh, obedience is essential to experiencing God's renewal because it reveals God's word in us, that it revives God's presence with us. And third, we see that it releases God's power through us. And here we are looking at verse 14. Verse 14 is a recap of everything that was just said to us in verses 12 and 13, but it is substantial in what it emphasizes. Listen again to verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, their God, Lord of hosts, their God. So it doesn't tell us anything new. It tells us again that the people went out and started working on the house of the Lord. All of that has been told to us in verses 12 and 13. But what it adds, what it puts its emphasis on, is the most significant word in this account. It reminds us that obedience is not... that. that it, it, I'm sorry. What it, it does is it recaps this, is to take us from the human perspective to the divine perspective. It takes us with the word, the Lord stirred the Spirit, to remind us that the obedience that we work out is in a great deal, is it actually grounded in God's grace. This verse is essential then for us not to go down the wrong path of thinking that our obedience is something in addition or outside of or augmented to our faith. It is not something that is in tension with God's grace. What this verse wants us to know is that obedience is not set against God's grace. Rather, our obedience depends upon and flows out of God's grace. As we see in this last verse, it is God that is acting through us to bring about our obedience. We are told that the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant. The word stirred there is a powerful word. It shows up in the book of Hosea to describe stirring. 
stoking the fires in the baker's oven to make them red hot. It is used incidentally in the Song of Solomon to describe other passions, which are quite intense. I'll leave that for the readers to discover for themselves. Needless to say, if you are stirred in Song of Solomon, you are quite, quite stirred. All right. Take some time and read Song of Solomon. <laughs> I, 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 never mind. All right. The, the word is in its, its causative form. It means that it's not just stirred, it's made stirred. And so Ezra tells us that it was the same word that made Cyrus write the decree to send the Jews back to their homeland. The same word now is being used of the people of God. God has stirred his people to obedience. So I want us to see two things that are important takeaways from this verse. First, God's acting through us means that our good works are grounded in his grace. Our good works are grounded in his grace. It is because the Lord stirred that we see that they came and worked. The book of Haggai does not teach us that obedience is a second leg of salvation. It is telling us that obedience is the fruit of a saving root. If the heart truly grasps and truly commits and truly believes, has covenanted with real faith that is not just on the lips, but in the heart, then that heart who has the word as authority over its life, who recognizes uh, it must be conformed to it, that recognizes that the word must define it, that person is acting out the fruit of that saving faith. We recognize that it is obedience that comes from the the life-giving gospel, the life-giving faith of God that allows us to do anything. When Jesus was at the Last Supper speaking to his disciples and describing himself as the vine and them as the branches, he said to them, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me... You can do nothing. All the fruit, all the good works that flow out of God's disciples is only because they have been vitally connected to the vine of Christ, which gives them life and stirs their spirit and motivates them to obedience. So you see the whole working out of our salvation, the good works that must come with saving faith are grounded in God's grace, because they flow out of saving faith. Paul tells us in Philippians this this verse that seems to confuse who's who's doing what, but he shows us that God works through us even in our obedience. Philippians 2.12, we are told, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, gospel obedience is obedience that comes from true faith in the gospel. It is part of God's grace. Our obedience does not lead to our boasting in the faith. Our obedience leads to praising God. Abiding obedience becomes the best evidence of saving faith. 
Finally, the second takeaway here. God's acting through us means our good works are not in vain. We are told that the people who have been stirred came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. We remember last week that if they would work on the house of the Lord, God would take pleasure in it and God would be glorified. The work that these people are doing, the obedience that they are showing to God, will not be in vain. It will bring God pleasure and God glory. And every form of obedience, every task that we take upon in obedience to God does that at minimum. Just like it pleases your, your parent as a child when you do the right thing, anytime you are in obedience, you are bringing pleasure to your Father in heaven. When you are choosing God's way over the world's way, you are bringing glory to God. And the temple that these, these people built is the same temple that Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into 500 years later to present it was the work of rebuilding this temple, these stones, the work of this generation that became the place that Jesus was first presented in the temple where the prophetess Anna was there to say, that's the Savior, and began to evangelize the remnant all around the temple saying, the Savior is here. Oh my goodness, look at the Savior. He's here. That is the glory and the pleasure brought by the obedience of this generation. How much more do we share in that joy and glory of God when we go forth with the commandment, go and make disciples of all nations, so that people who have never called upon the name of God may know a God who loves them and has saved them, who has purchased them. Jesus again says in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So as we conclude, we, we recognize that our obedience is essential to God's renewal because it is through our obedience that God's word is revealed in us, that God's presence is revived with us, and that God's power is released through us. My friends, I have not said anything but articulate to you what the true gospel is meant to do. Paul says this as we conclude, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Haggai tells us the same thing that Paul tells us. We are saved by grace that we might live out obediently and do good works. Saving faith is a living faith. It delights in pleasing the Lord. It hears his voice and puts it into action. We hear this word, we must reject stalling and stagnating. There must be pursuing. Let us follow through with obedience, the faith that we believe. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you would keep us from misunderstanding this sermon. That you would make it clear that obedience is not something that we add to our faith but it is something that flows out of 
the faith that we have by your grace. But I also pray, Father, that you would make each of us do the inventory that we need to do. How can such a living and active faith be in us and not be bearing fruit? Father, if there is fruitlessness in us, if there is stalling in us, Father, make us search. Make us consider the faith that we profess. I pray, Father, that you would help each and every one of us to move from stalling to more action, to deeper pursuit. Father, I pray that you would just fan into flames, that you would stir our spirits individually and as a church as we seek to live your will, to do your will, to be known by your will. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.